Welcome to Asbury United Methodist Church. My name's Pastor Will. Thanks for joining our podcast. This is where you'll be able to find all of our sermons, as well as special devotionals and interviews. We hope these messages inspire hope and bring support as you grow on your journey of faith. If you have any questions, or if you want further conversation, or if you simply like what you hear, connect with Asbury through our Facebook page or by checking our website at asburymaitland.org. I'm a millennial, which I think you all know, which basically means I grew up in the 90s and I came of age in the early 2000s. And so during this period, as I was growing up, transitioning into, into adulthood, there was a young movie director who rose to prominence and became a household name. In fact, you've probably heard of him before. His name is M. Night Shyamalan. We got a picture of M. Night Shyamalan up here on the screen. How many of you have heard of M. Night Shyamalan before, maybe seen his movies? So M. Night Shyamalan is originally from India, uh, but immigrated to America when he was a baby with his parents, and so he grew up here. And he's best known for making suspense-filled movies with plot twists, these supernatural movies with plot twists. Um, some of his best-known movies include uh, The Sixth Sense, uh, which came out, can you believe this, 22 years ago in 1999, uh, starring Bruce Willis. How many of you have seen The Sixth Sense? Yeah? You like that, Suzanne? It's a good movie. Uh, another movie that he created... Unbreakable came out one year after The Sixth Sense, uh, 2000, uh, starring Bruce Willis as well, and then uh, Samuel L. Jackson. And then finally, Signs, uh, which came out in 2002. This is probably my favorite In Night Shyamalan movie, um, starring Mel Gibson. Now, as a director, In Night Shyamalan, you might not know this, but as a director, In Night Shyamalan takes his inspiration in part from Alfred Hitchcock. Any Alfred Hitchcock fans? Famous director from the mid part of the 20th century who also specialized in movies that were suspense-filled with plot twists. In fact, early in M. Night Shyamalan's career, there were some critics who thought that he was going to be the next Alfred Hitchcock. Now, it's debatable whether he's achieved that status, but that's what critics thought early on. While in keeping with his mentor, uh, Alfred Hitchcock, there's something that M. Night Shyamalan does in his movies, uh, not all of his movies, but most of his movies, which Alfred Hitchcock also did in his movies. Anybody know what it is? Exactly. He makes cameo appearances. He puts himself as a character in the movie itself. In other words, Ennad Shyamalan is not just content with writing or directing a particular movie. He wants to be in the movie. He wants to be in the story himself. And so as a director, he finds some creative way of writing himself in the script, if just for a moment. And there's something to be said for this, isn't there? I mean, think about this. It's one thing to be a director. It's one thing to sit in a comfy director chair, tell everybody what to do, call all the shots, yell things like, action, cut. It's a whole other thing to get up from that chair, uh, put on makeup, and then play a part in the movie yourself. But folks, in a grander sense, and obviously a more profound sense, that's the very thing that Christians say happened 2,000 years ago through the person of Jesus Christ. That Almighty God, God from all eternity, who made all there is, spoke galaxies into being, put the stars and the planets in their places, that God himself came to our planet. He wrote himself into our story through the person of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to be talking about in this message. And so over the past few weeks, um, as a congregation, uh, we've been walking through a message series called The Short of It. we got the graphic up here on the screen, uh, The Short of It. The subtitle is, 
the entire story of the Bible from creation to new creation. And so this series is designed to give us a 30,000-foot view of Scripture, a bird's-eye view of Scripture. Um, Earlier in this series, we talked about how we don't always approach the Bible, God's Word, Scripture. We don't always approach the Bible in the best way. What we do is we pull out these isolated verses, and then we try to build our whole theology, our whole view of God on that one particular verse, when God is inviting us into a big-picture view of Scripture. And that's what we are hoping to draw from this series, a big-picture view of the Bible. And in doing this and trying to arrive at this big-picture view, we're focusing on six major movements of Scripture. The six major movements that we're looking at are these. If we can, let's say these together. Creation, fall, Israel, Jesus, the church, and new creation. Creation, the fall, Israel, Jesus, the church, and the new creation. And so just a quick recap. The first week of the series, we talked about creation. Uh, We find the story of creation and the opening chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2. And in that message, we saw that God made this universe, God made this world for no other reason other than love. That the love of God, the love within the Trinity, that love just spilled out into God's act of creation. That when God made this world, it was whole, it was complete, it was good, it lacked nothing. And then God saved the very best for last when he made us as human beings in his own image. And in that message, we talked about that a huge part of what it means for us to be made in God's image is that we have been made for community. We have been made for relationships. We have been made for a relationship with God, but we've also been made for a relationship with who? Each other, the people around us. What did Jesus say was the greatest commandment? Love God, love your neighbor in the same way that you love yourself. But then as we saw the second week of the series, something happened along the way that disrupted this community God made us for. Theologians call this something the fall. The fall is the second major movement of Scripture. We read about the fall in Genesis chapter 3, the story of Adam and Eve, which, as we said, is so much more than a story about two people in a garden. The story of Adam and Eve is a story about the entire human race, how we took the freedom God gave us, the freedom God built into us, and we did our own thing instead. We rebelled against God's perfect love. That brought sin into creation. Um, Sin has affected everything. It's infected everything. And yet, despite our sinfulness, despite our brokenness, God remained committed to us as human beings. And then, as Pastor Will brought out last week, that commitment takes on new life when we arrive at Genesis 12 with the story of Israel. Um, Israel is the third major movement of Scripture. And through Israel's story, which, by the way, takes up the entire Old Testament, begins in Genesis 12 with Abraham, goes all the way to Malachi 4, through Israel's story, we see God's intent and God's desire to eventually share salvation with the entire planet, to restore all of creation. And so that brings us this morning to the beginning part of the New Testament, the fourth major movement of Scripture, which contains a plot twist far greater, far better, far more suspenseful, far more imaginative than anything that Alfred Hitchcock or M. Night Shyamalan could have ever come up with. And that would be the movement of God into our world through the person of Jesus Christ. That at a definitive point in human history, God who is Trinity, God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God came into our world through the person of his Son. Uh, The story of Jesus is found in the four Gospels. Uh, The four Gospels are the opening books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Well, listen with me this morning to how John describes this event of God becoming a human being in Jesus. This is John's version of the Christmas story. 
This is John chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 1. John says, in the beginning, and when John says beginning, he's talking about from before the very beginning of time, before there was anything, in the beginning, the word, and when John says word, the Greek word is logos, uh, he's referring to Jesus Christ, the Son. In the beginning, the word already existed. The word was with God, and let's read this next line together. And the word was God. In other words, Jesus was fully God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him, because how did God speak in Genesis? He spoke through his word. He spoke creation into being. God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. So the word became human and made his home among us. Theologians refer to this event that John is talking about as the incarnation. That's the $50 word for today's sermon, incarnation. Incarnation comes from the Latin word carne, which means meat or flesh. Think of a carnivore. What's a carnivore? Carnivore is somebody who eats meat, eats flesh. Because in Jesus, we believe that God put on meat. God put on flesh. God became a human being like us in every way. God pitched his tent and made his dwelling among us. And folks, so often we read this really quickly. We don't consider how mind-boggling this is. The creator of all there is actually became a part of the creation. The infinite, the infinite became finite. The immortal became mortal. God is a human being. Isn't that amazing? Why would God do this? Why on earth would God become a human being like us? Because God knew that it was necessary to save us. Now, this story is from a long time ago, but who here remembers Humphrey the humpback whale? Anybody remember Humphrey the humpback whale? Well, Humphrey became a national mascot 36 years ago, I believe it was, in 1985. You see, what happened was um, Humphrey was a humpback whale. He was just swimming in the San Francisco Bay off the coast of California. Well, suddenly he began to head into the Sacramento River, which is freshwater. You know what freshwater does to whales? It kills them. It's lethal to them. And so each evening, the news would cover Humphrey's journey. First, it was on the local news in California. Then it was on the national news. And pretty soon, the entire country was captivated by the story. The whole country was invested in what was going to happen to Humphrey the humpback whale. And so there were some scientists and some well-meaning laypersons, and they tried their very best uh, to get Humphrey to return to the saltwater environment of the ocean, but nothing seemed to be working. All those techniques that they would use to lead whales back into the ocean, they weren't doing anything. And so what was happening over time is more and more weeks of being trapped in fresh water was beginning to take a toll on Humphrey. His skin was beginning to get gray. He was becoming lifeless. He was not the whale that God had created him to be. Well, people were really struggling, saying, what are we going to do? How are we going to save this whale? Because the whole world held its breath as Humphrey seemed to be dying right in front of them. Well, then, as a last-ditch effort, Dr. Bernie Krause was called in. We have a picture of Dr. Bernie Krause up here on the screen. Bernie Krause was a musician and an ecologist, and he had this really interesting idea. Nobody knew if it would work. But he had recorded the sound that humpback whales make in the ocean, and so he suggested playing this sound off the side of a boat through a speaker. People thought that it was crazy, kind of different, but hey, it's worth giving a shot because nothing else is working. So they got in a boat, they lowered the speaker, and the sound that humpback whales make was being played, that eerie sound, and 
Everybody stood by quietly wondering what was going to happen next. Well, suddenly, Humphrey the humpback whale emerged from the ocean. He came up right beside the boat, and that was the captain's cue. He started up the boat, and he began to head toward the San Francisco Bay. And as he was heading to the bay, Humphrey was following right behind him. And then there was a helicopter overhead, video cameras, uh, just capturing this journey. There were actually spectators on the riverbanks, and they were holding signs that said, Go Humphrey, and people were yelling, and they were screaming, and they were applauding. They were saying, You could do it, Humphrey! Go into the bay, Humphrey! We believe in you, Humphrey! Until finally, Humphrey made his way into the bay, and then he made his way into the Pacific Ocean, where he was a last free. Scientists learned something really incredible back in 1985. You know what it was? It takes a whale to talk to whales. That's really imaginative, right? Really just groundbreaking stuff. It takes a whale to talk to whales. Well, folks, God knew that to communicate his deep and abiding love for us as human beings and to save us from our sin, which was killing us in the same way that freshwater was killing Humphrey, God knew that he had to become one of us. God knew that he had to become a human being. In fact, everything else God did beforehand in the Old Testament with the people of Israel, we talked about Israel last week, everything else God did beforehand in the Old Testament with the people of Israel, that was a precursor to the incarnation. In fact, the whole reason, and Pastor Will mentioned this, the whole reason God drew the people of Israel to himself in the first place, it's not that God loved the people of Israel more than everybody else. It's not that God preferred the people of Israel to everybody else, but rather the whole reason God called the people of Israel to himself is because God knew that one day through Jesus, the Messiah, the Redeemer, the Deliverer, who would come from the people of Israel, God would draw the whole world to himself. Jesus actually highlighted this in a conversation that he had in John chapter 3 with a Pharisee named Nicodemus. Listen to what Jesus says here. This is John 3.16, what is perhaps the most recognized verse in all of Scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Notice, Jesus doesn't say, for God so loved Israel, or for God so loved one nation, or for God so loved some people, but rather, for God so loved the world. The Greek word that's used here for world is cosmos. For God so loved the whole cosmos, for God so loved the whole universe that he came for us in Jesus. And so let's be clear about something. That includes you. And that includes me. And that includes everybody. Because the simple reality is, there is not a single person who has ever lived, and I guarantee you this, there is not a single person who will ever live for whom God and Jesus has not come. God and Jesus has come for everybody. This is a core conviction of United Methodist, that God and Jesus has come for everybody. No exclusions. Charles Wesley, one of the founders of the Methodist movement, he captured this very point in one of my favorite hymns. Uh, he wrote this hymn back in 1747, Come Sinners to the Gospel Feast. Listen to what he says here. Come sinners to the Gospel Feast. Let every soul be Jesus' guest. Not let some souls, most souls, let every soul be Jesus' guest. You need not one be left behind. For God hath bid who? For God hath bid all humankind. In Jesus, God hath bid. Bid is an old English word that means invited. In Jesus, God hath invited all of us to come to receive salvation, the very life that God intended for us when he put us together in his image, placed us as human beings in the Garden of Eden. 
In fact, everything God did in Jesus Christ, beginning in Bethlehem with his miraculous birth and then culminating in Jerusalem 33 years later with the cross and the resurrection, everything God did in Jesus Christ was about overturning what happened in the Garden of Eden. Because in Eden, what happened? Well, in Eden, paradise was lost because of our sinfulness, because of our disobedience, our rebellion. But in Jesus, God began the process of restoring paradise, reversing the effects of sin. And there are many signs that point to this reality uh, that we find in the four Gospels. We're talking about the four Gospels today that capture the story of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But what I want to do in the time that we have left is I want to highlight just two of them. Just two signs that we find in the Gospels that show us, that demonstrate that everything God did in Jesus was about overturning what happened in the Garden of Eden. And so the first one is found in the Gospel of John, and I believe the sermon notes talk about this. Uh, the first one is found in the Gospel of John, and then the second one is found in the Gospel of Luke. So let's begin by looking at the Gospel of John. Toward the end of John's Gospel, which by the way, John is my favorite Gospel because to me, John writes more like a poet. There's a lot of... Um, a really deep language that he uses. But toward the end of John's gospel, in John chapter 19, Jesus is crucified. He's put on a cross for our sin. Well, after Jesus dies, only John tells us, and by the way, you will not find this detail in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. If you find this detail in Matthew, Mark, or Luke, I will pay you $100. Are you listening? You will not find this detail in any gospel except for John. Only John tells us that Jesus was buried in a garden. John is very specific about this. Check out what it says here in John 19, verse 41, verse 42. The place of crucifixion was near a garden where there was a new tomb never used before. And so because it was the day of preparation for the Jewish Passover, and since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. So Jesus is buried in a garden. What happens three days later? Easter Sunday. He's resurrected from the dead. Uh, God the Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, raises Jesus to new life. And then after the resurrection, Jesus appears to a whole bunch of people. But who's the first person that he appears to? Mary Magdalene. This is found in John's Gospel. Mary Magdalene is the first person to whom Jesus goes. And who does Mary Magdalene assume Jesus to be? The gardener. This is also found uh, in John's Gospel. This is John 20, beginning in verse 1, and then verses 14 and 16. It says, early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, and by the way, when John says while it was still dark, he's talking literally, but I think he's also talking figuratively. It was dark, wasn't it, after the crucifixion? Early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. God always does God's best work when it's dark. She turned to leave and saw someone standing there. It was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. Dear woman, why are you crying, Jesus asked. Who are you looking for? She thought he was the what? She thought he was the gardener. Sir, she said, if you have taken him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will go and get him. Mary, Jesus said. She turned to him and cried out, Rabboni, which is Hebrew for teacher. Of all the people Mary Magdalene could have assumed that Jesus was, she assumed that he was the gardener. And I find it incredibly poignant that Jesus doesn't correct her, does he? He doesn't say, come on, Mary. I'm not the gardener. I'm Jesus. We used to hang out together. Don't you remember me? That's because theologically, Mary doesn't get it wrong. 
Jesus is the gardener. He's the very one who left heaven and came to earth. And he entered a world that was dirty, didn't he? A world that was dirty with sin and brokenness. He got down on his knees. As any good gardener does, and he began to uproot things. He began to uproot all that was evil, all that was bad, all that was wrong, and he restored what was lost in the first garden, the Garden of Eden. Jesus is the garden. I'm not sure if I'm going to shake anybody's hand after service. I made kind of a mess there. So that's the first sign that we find in the Gospels that show us that everything God did in Jesus was about reversing, overturning what happened in the Garden of Eden. There's a second sign of this that we find in the Gospels, and that's in the Gospel of Luke, Luke 24, and what's been called the road to Emmaus. We've heard the story before, the road to Emmaus, the walk to Emmaus. So basically what happens, and this story is only found in Luke, is after the resurrection, it's Sunday evening, and there's these two disciples who are walking on the road. The one disciple is called Cleopas, and then there's another disciple. We don't know who this other person is, but we assume that it's his wife. And as they're walking along, suddenly Jesus appears to them. But like Mary Magdalene, they don't recognize Jesus. They just think that this person's a stranger. So Jesus has some fun. He asks them what they're talking about. And they basically say, have you been living under a rock? Don't you know what's happened here in Jerusalem? There's this Jesus, and we thought that he had come to redeem Israel, but he's been crucified, and, and now people are saying that he's been resurrected. We don't know what to think. And so Jesus patiently explains to them how the entire Old Testament led up to these events. Well, then as they're walking, it gets dark outside, and Jesus pretends as if he's going to go further on. And they say, no, 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 you got to come have dinner with us. And so Jesus is eating with them, and they still don't know that it's Jesus. And then as they're sharing a meal, listen to what it says here in Luke 24, verse 31. Suddenly their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. Their eyes were opened. Where else have we heard that phrase? Exactly. We heard it two weeks ago in the story of Adam and Eve. That like these disciples, Adam and Eve had a meal, didn't they? Only their meal was a forbidden meal. Their meal didn't involve God. And like these disciples, Adam and Eve, their eyes were opened. This is what it says in Genesis 3, verse 6 and verse 7. The woman, that would be Eve, the woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. And she gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate it too. At that moment, what happened? Their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. Do you see the parallel between these two stories? In both stories, there are two people a man and a woman in the Adam and Eve story, and a man and presumably a woman in the Emmaus story. In both stories, they share a meal, and in both stories, eyes are open. Only the first time eyes are open, it leads to shame and guilt and embarrassment and the disruption of community. The second time eyes are opened, it leads to the restoration of community. Community with God and community with each other, the very community for which God made us when he put us together. 
And so you see, folks, everything God did in Jesus Christ, beginning in Bethlehem, culminating in Jerusalem, everything God did in Jesus was about overturning what happened in Eden, reversing the effects of sin. That's how desperately God wanted to restore us. And so listen, here's the bottom line. We have worth as human beings. We have value. Don't ever question your worth or your value. You mean as much to God as the sending of God's Son to our world. There is no measure to which God will not go to be with you and to bring you home. There's a retired United Methodist pastor. His name is Riley Short. Uh, he served churches in our conference for a number of years. Uh, even after his retirement, he continued to serve. And uh, if you've ever heard Riley preach, you know that he's a storyteller. Riley loves to tell stories. He is really good at telling stories. Well, sometimes when he preaches, Riley likes to tell the story of when he was a young pastor with small children. It had been a really tough and demanding week at the church. Just a lot of things were happening, and um, he found it hard to keep up with everything. And so he was late getting to a sermon, which causes a lot of stress when you're a preacher because Sundays have this way of coming every week. So it's Saturday afternoon. He's in his study at home. He's trying to put together his sermon, but he's stuck, and the inspiration won't come, and he's sweating bullets like, ah, i got to say something tomorrow. Well, suddenly his little girl, about four or five years old, she bursts in the room, and she says, Daddy, Daddy, look it. I drew a picture. I want to show it to you. And Riley lost his temper. And he said, if I've told you once, I've told you a million times, you always got to knock before you go into a room. Can't you see that I'm working right now? I'm trying to write a sermon. I don't have time to play with you. Go, go, go. Go somewhere else. And so she left. She was crying with the picture in her hands. So Riley sat back down and tried to write a sermon, but he was still stuck. He didn't know what to say. No matter how hard he tried, the inspiration just wouldn't come. Well, then suddenly he felt God speaking into his heart. And God said to him, Riley, you think you're so important right now, working on that sermon. People won't even remember it five minutes after you preach it. But you just broke your daughter's heart. You need to go make it right. So Riley stood up and opened the door. He called his daughter in the room, and she came down, or she came into the room. Her head was down. She was holding her picture. She had been crying. And he said, sweetie, I'm so sorry. Daddy's frustrated. Um, I lost my temper. Can you please forgive me? Of course, Daddy, she said. And then he brought her onto his lap, and he said, listen, I want to see this picture that you just drew. Can, can you show it to me? And so she showed him the picture. I drew a picture of our house. You see, this is the grass in the front yard and, and the windows, and there's our dog sitting on the porch. This is a beautiful picture, he said. I am so proud of you. Well, listen, Daddy's working on a sermon, and he doesn't know what to say. So if you could tell the congregation tomorrow morning just one thing about Jesus, just one thing, what would you tell them? And she thought for a second, and she said, hmm, I would tell them. I would tell them. Ooh, I would tell them, if you are ever lost, Jesus will come and find you. If you are ever lost, Jesus will come and find you. Folks, that's what God did. 2,000 years ago, in the incarnation, God came and found us. God wrote himself into our story. 
God rescued us. We have worth. We have value. Far more than we will ever understand. Praise be to God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. God, we do have worth and value. Even after our sinfulness and our rebellion, when we turned against you in the Garden of Eden, all of us did this as human beings. You didn't give up on us. But rather, like a shepherd searches for a lost sheep, like a woman searches for a lost coin, like a father longing for his sons, you came after us. You pursued us. You relentlessly pursued us all the way to the cross and the empty tomb. We praise you, O God. We celebrate your love. God, I pray that if there's anybody watching the service right now online or maybe who's worshiping with us here in the room, if that person hasn't yet surrendered to your love, your gift of salvation in Jesus, that they would simply say in the depth of who they are, Lord Jesus, I recognize you as the one who has come to save me, as the one who has come and found me. I give myself to you, all of who I am, my heart, my soul, my mind, my strength. I am yours. And God, I imagine that for a number of us, myself included, we've said that prayer before, but we recognize how easily it is to stray away and to get away from you. So please, God, forgive us. By your grace, we recommit ourselves to you. Please use us in such ways that more and more people might come to discover the depth of your abiding love. Again, O oh God, we praise you, we worship you. Thank you. Thank you. Amen.